Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Project Zion podcast. I am your host, Brittany Mangelson, and today I am thrilled to be recording this episode. I have on our other Project Zion podcast host, Robin Linkhart, and we are going to be talking about The Handmaid's Tale. And I just want to say, um, I've never actually dedicated an episode to anyone before, but for those friends who are part of the community space community, um, I'm going to throw this one out to you guys because Robin was just recently a guest minister on community space. And we talked briefly about this and I know that everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but there's a, there is a great amount of interest on this episode in particular from the community space family. So this one's for you guys. So Robin, thank you for joining me this evening. I'm really excited about this conversation. It's great to be with you, Brittany. And this is one of my favorite topics too. And we've talked about this ever since it first came out. So I'm looking forward to this. It's true. We we talk Handmaid's Tale a lot, so this will be an exciting episode. So I just want to start out um, by giving a brief overview of what we are talking about when we talk about Handmaid's Tale. So this is a Hulu original series based on the dystopian novel by a Canadian author named Margaret Atwood, Atwood. and it was originally published in 1985. So it's set in a near-future New England totalitarian state resembling a theonomy? Robin, is that the right word? I'll say that again. A theonomy. Yes, a theonomy. A theonomy is basically when God's love cannot govern a nation because God's law does not rule in the hearts of the people. So where God's law does dwell in the hearts of the people, it's called a theocracy. But in this particular totalitarian condition um, that's very, very uh, radical fundamentalist Christian, um, they're ruling over other people. So it's called a theonomy. I don't think I've ever heard that word before. So thank you. (laughs) So uh, the storyline in this particular show and in the book focuses on the journey of the handmaid Offred. And her name is based on the fact that she is owned by the household of Fred. So she is of Fred. So Handmaid's Tale explores themes of women um, in a very, very strict and heavy patriarchal society. Um, And they are controlled by this society. And the various means by which these women gain individualism and independence. And so season one of the Hulu series covers the book and it covers the book pretty closely, I would say. And then season two branches out into its own original material um, and just takes us down really, really wild and surprising paths. So Robin, I want to hear from you. This show has hit a lot of nerves and feels incredibly relevant for today, even though it was based on a book from 1985. Why do you think that is? Well, I think in a U.S. context, this uh, Hulu original was released during the midst of a very polarized political landscape. And we 
are seeing things kind of rear their ugly heads once again in our society. For example, we're seeing this big backlash against feminism, uh, a lot of things that are concerning women, the Me Too movement. Um, it, it seems in some arenas that men are exempt from justice when it comes to assaulting women, sexually assaulting women. Uh, also, we've had a resurgence of racism, which is interesting because I was thinking about this um, today as I was kind of looking over, you know, the last two seasons, and I'm not seeing overt racism in the context of this storyline, which is kind of surprising because it seems like they have every other ism. So we, we also have seen a backlash against rights for LGBT in the USA in the recent couple years. And so that also is a theme here and a very strong Christian fundamentalist group um, pushing back on things that we would see as being good progress towards um, liberty for all people in this nation. Uh, and, and definitely in, in this climate that we see in The Handmaid's Tale, it just feels eerily like, oh my gosh, could this really happen? Uh, things about immigrants, all these themes are come up over and over again, I think, in The Handmaid's Tale. And it felt unnervingly close to something that would be our worst nightmare. But because of recent events, we've been very unsettled. Certain sensibilities have been very unsettled. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with everything you just said. I think it's interesting that this show was obviously planned before the intense political climate of 2016. Um, it was, you know, written and um, produced, etc. But so many of the themes, like you said, just felt like they were pulled directly from our day. And I knew that it was a book uh, before I watched the series. I kind of watched a few of the episodes and then read the book. And um, it, it was alarming just how close to home so many of the themes felt. And like you said, a lot of the things that happen in Handmaid's Tale feel like the most extreme or the worst nightmares that we could have with some of these topics. But the conversations surrounding them are the same. And, you know, I'll say that the show in the first season, it didn't show a whole lot, if I remember correctly, about kind of the the formation of Gilead, which is the dystopian kind of town area um, that was once America. But in season two, we find a lot more of the dialogue and the events surrounding the uprising of Gilead. And it was more in season two that it was really alarming um, that some of the talking points that were being said, some of the justifications, some of the rights that were being stripped away um, are actual conversations that are happening now. Um, so not to sound dramatic, but it, it kind of alarming a little bit. So, and I will say too, um, as people probably are aware, a lot of women have taken on upon themselves to wear like the red cloaks and the white caps um, that are very visually impactful in The Handmaid's Tale um, and do different protests um, on the on their state capitol or even across the White House, etc. Um, so it definitely is a very striking and alarming political visual. Yeah, it, it sure is, for sure. So I think it's important to say um, that one of the 
the reasons that Gilead forms is the human response to our wounding Mother Earth. And so if I remember correctly, and in the book as well, it brings us up that um, human waste, just chemicals and toxicity essentially um, kills the Earth. And there are huge droughts and infertility rates skyrocket. And so it's kind of this Christian fundamentalist um, ideation that, that in order to reverse all of this and to please God again, because they view God cursing humanity um, through droughts and, and infertility, um, that they have to kind of get back down to the biblical law as literal as they can get. Um, do you have any comments on that, Robin? Well, I think it's really interesting during the flashbacks um, to the before time, um, we really get a deeper understanding of, of what brought them to this this critical point and hearing about, you know, just the rampant infertility and crops failing and just this worldwide uh, disaster, um, which it just pressurizes everything, but such a a poignant concrete um, consequence of not caring for the planet. And then it's all tied up in this political power struggle and this eventually a coup that that overturns the U.S. government with uh, military action and, you know, people are killed all over the place, people are taken hostage. Um, it's just, it's incredible. And these flashbacks that kind of show how this coup kind of starts, it almost seems like it's inside the government or there's something inside that's working to turn laws. For example, uh, women lose their rights of owning property. They lose their rights of having a bank account. Um, They're laid off from their jobs. So it it sounds like women just aren't even allowed to work outside the home. And you see these things taking place kind of one by one and then rapidly just unraveling things right before the military uh, insurgence of power takes things over. But yeah, I think this, it's a right-wing fundamentalist, fanatical underpinning that, that the, the ideology, so the extreme um, perspectives on what needs to happen next is all fueled by this religious fanaticism. And they do have a, an understanding of how they need to take over and um, it's almost like primitivism on steroids of uh, getting back to Bible basics and very literal understandings of the Bible. And most of it is Old Testament from what I'm gleaning. What do you think? Yeah, um, I have not made the connection necessarily of all the quotes. They quote scripture all the time. Um, and quote scripture very literal to justify really terrible things. Um, but yes, it is very much a vengeful God, a wrathful God, an eye for an eye kind of God, mm-hmm. um, and, and a very literal understanding in, in a very punitive sense. Um, I do think it's interesting the way that music is also intertwined in here in the, 
in the in the series um the him onward christian soldiers is played a lot throughout i think both seasons and um you know that was a hymn that i grew up with and like as a child i didn't think of it as super radical or uh problematic at all um Mm -hmm. but I find issues with it now, I guess. And so then to hear that played um, during some pretty horrific scenes in the show uh, is, is a little bit alarming. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's frustrating to me because on one end, I can see how a society would come to the conclusion that uh, by reading scripture very literally and you see some, there's stories of when people were destroyed because they weren't following God's commandments and kind of this, this bubbling up of sin in society. So there's a couple of flashbacks where I can't remember which character it is. Somebody is running. I think it might even be June who is um, June is Alfred's name prior to this fundamentalist takeover. Um, she's like running in like a sports bra or maybe some short shorts or something. Ah, mm-hmm. it, it might not be June, but she basically, she passes um, who becomes aunt Lydia. And I think she calls her a slut or a whore or something like that. And you just see with various flashbacks, um, the different characters who end up becoming part of the Gilead leadership, mm-hmm. um, pointing out various sins of society. And so it's uh it's frustrating to me because I've worked really hard to kind of break free from a more literal interpretation and understanding of scripture. And so then to see kind of the extreme, um, and I did not grow up in that much of a fundamentalist home, but, but there was still kind of that underlining idea of when you keep the commandments, if you please God, you will be blessed. And if you don't, then you'll be cursed. And so to see this kind of lived out on a societal level, with such extremes it's just really unfortunate and every time they use scripture to justify something horrific i just cringe not because i mean because they're doing something horrific yes but then um to use scripture to do that is just even more maddening and maybe that's the seminary student in me speaking strongly um Mm -hmm. but it's 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 alarming and i think that I mean, I could go off on a tangent for this for a while, but when you take the good news of the gospel and you box it into one tight interpretation um, that is that is not exegetically sound, um, to me it just shows how important it is that, that Christians understand the use of scripture uh, responsibly. So mm-hmm. that's just kind of my little tangent there. But Well, I, I think... That's very true, and I think we see it uh, exampled in a fictional story that Margaret Atwood originally wrote, um, and and we see that. I mean, for example, the handmaids are marked, they're tagged on their ear, and in Exodus, there's a phrase that says, mark a slave's ear, and I just heard that randomly um, in, in some meditation um devotion i was doing and they they used that um of course it was not to 
talk about doing it to people today, but all of a sudden it just hit me. Oh my gosh, you know, that came straight out of the Bible as it's played out in Handmaid's Tale. And I think, Brittany, you're the one that said that um, Margaret Atwood said her entire book was fiction, but everything that she talked about in there in one way, shape or form had happened some other time in the world, you know, bits of it here, bits of it there. So we know um, without a doubt that scripture has been used to harm people uh, for thousands of years. And this story certainly um, weaves that into the plot. Yeah. And Robin, you talking about tagging the handmaids just made me realize that we haven't really explained what the handmaids are, what their role is. So would you like to do that? Yeah, so maybe we should jump in into that um, whole lineup of roles in Gilead. And, of yeah. course, I'll do the handmaids, and then we'll, we'll just kind of take turns on all these things. So there's this big um, challenge of infertility, and the Gilead, what is it called, a Gilead kingdom? They just call it Gilead all the time. The leaders of Gilead have put their heads together and devised what they believe is a divinely inspired solution to the infertility problem, as well as correcting all the evils of the world. And so um, there are commanders or leaders of Gilead that are married to wives. These wives are barren. Of course, we understand that the infertility being experienced can be on both the part of the male and the female or only the male or only the female in a coupling, just depending on who's infertile. So the handmaids are selected to serve in a household. And as uh, Brittany said earlier, the handmaid is named after the uh, man of the household. And in this case, the Waterford household is Fred uh, Waterford. So she is called of Fred. So all the handmaids are named after the man of whatever the man's name is. And those handmaids are uh, sex surrogates um, who once a month during the ripe and fertile time of their cycle are called into the room of the husband and wife. The appropriate scripture is read. There's a little ritual of kneeling with scripture. And then um, the wife sits on the bed, the handmaid, is um, couched between her legs and ceremoniously um, the, the male um, has sexual intercourse with the handmaid who is a surrogate of the wife and the wife actually holds her hands on either side during this ritual raping of this handmaid. Um, and that is her sole purpose. I mean, she does do some things to help around the house. She's the one that goes to the grocery store with the other handmaids in town. And the uh, Martha of the home gives the list for the groceries and back and forth in that regard. Um, but largely I'm not seeing that the handmaid has any purpose in the household than being this hopefully surrogate to birth the child for the couple. And um, depending on the wishes of the couple, the handmaid may or may not stay in the household after the infant is born, depending if they want her to nurse the child or send her on her way to another household. Maybe I've missed something on the function other than being the um, 
sexual surrogate and hopeful um, uterus for the fertilized child and birthing the child and a little shopping. Have I missed something there, Brittany, on what the handmaid does? I don't think so. I think that that is the the basic function. Um, it it seems to me that there is varying degrees of tension between the commander's wife and the handmaid, understandably so. Um, in some of the kind of different side plots that you see, some of the um, some of the commander's wives are a little more. They allow the handmaid to be a little bit more involved, a little bit more seen, etc. Um, but then the commander's wives can also make the handmaid's life even more of a living hell than it would already be. Um, and so there's, there is a lot of dialogue about that relationship because it seems to me that the commander's wife has some amount of control over, I don't want to say the happiness, but, but kind of the happiness of the handmaid um, and whether she's allowed to participate in functions or gatherings or things like mm-hmm. that. The commander's wife has, has a lot of say over that, but yeah, as far as functionality of the handmaid, I think you nailed it. And the other interesting thing in Gilead is that it seems as though the expression of human sexuality is limited to procreation. So it seems like just having a sexual, healthy sexual relationship with your marriage partner. Um, if you're barren, it, it's, it just doesn't happen. And, um, the act of sexual intercourse is only to propagate the species, which puts this huge um, repression of sexuality on the the whole of Gilead. Because if you're not married, of course, you're not allowed to do anything like that. And I mean, people are stressed to no end just based on that part of the society, uh, not to mention all the violence that's happening all around and, yeah, exactly. And I think that that um, suppression spills out in a variety of ways that maybe we'll touch on in a little bit. Um, but over the course of the two seasons that we have so far, um, I can think of several ways that it spills out, uh, which is, ends up having horrific consequences for those who engage in those those kinds of things. So, Brittany, why don't we talk about some of the other roles in Gilead? Um, why don't you take Commanders? Okay, so the commanders are basically the leaders in Gilead. Um, They are men. They are homeowners. They are the ones that make the rules. They seem to be in in some sort of um, hierarchy arrangement, like there are higher commanders, and I think they have different status and roles, but it's kind of hard to sort out. I think somewhere along the line we find out that Fred Waterford is fairly high up in the, the status of commanders, but we don't always know that at the beginning time. Yeah. So there's a definitely uh, regional hierarchies that are governmental government hierarchies. And it seems to be that not every commander is in full leadership capacity. Um, but that Fred Waterford is higher up in the hierarchy. And in season two, we learned that he um, helped orchestrate a lot of the formation of, of Gilead. And so it seems to be there's different ways that you can kind of 
rebel or break the rules, etc. Um, but we do see some very intense punitive actions taken towards some of the commanders. There's a few incidences where um, the commanders were caught maybe sleeping with their handmaid or doing something outside of the very ritualized sexual experience and they are punished mightily for it. Um, there's one situation uh, where the handmaids are actually called to and essentially commanded to murder um, a man who they say was raping a handmaid, which is filled with terrible irony. So there definitely are uh, ways to keep the men in check in Gilead. And there's definitely a hierarchy among the commanders and, and what they can and cannot get away with. Yeah. And when, when the handmaids are called to, to do these assassinations or executions, uh, it's in the style of uh, old biblical stoning. It, it feels like when that happens. So it's get these very literal interpretations and uh, responses in, in their contemporary time, which is very eerie. Yeah. And the whole system is kind of set up to um, keep everyone in check. So another one of the players are the eyes and they're essentially regular members of society who serve in various roles who also are quote unquote eyes in the community. And if they spy or if they detect any rebellion, if they detect any um, formulating plans for any sort of mutiny or uh, detect any sort of inappropriate behavior, then they're supposed to go to the leadership of Gilead and um, rat out essentially the people. And so fear is a huge, huge theme going through this um, society. And the eyes are kind of the ones that are hidden among the regular people and no one knows who the eyes are. And so it kind of keeps everybody in check. It keeps everybody scared. They never know when they're being watched, etc. Yeah. They're like these undercover agents of Gilead. And like you said, it can be anybody. It can even be a handmaid. Uh, you never know. Yeah, exactly. Then they have these drivers. All the commanders have a driver and they seem, they kind of, they kind of seem to me like the chauffeur, you know, like at Downton Abbey or something, but they're, they seem rather militant too, but like a cross between the secret service agent and a chauffeur. Yeah. And uh, one thing with the drivers that I think is interesting is because there are like very literal real borders and checks and who can cross where and everyone has to be, um, if they're out in public, everyone has to be going to a specific place. You can't just like wander around and um, everything is very, very militant and locked down. So that's the purpose of the driver is to essentially control where the commanders go to keep them in check um, to make sure that, you know, People don't have access to cars, essentially, um, that that everything is dictated, is planned. You can't just get up and go, uh, which which I find the more I think about that in the context of the story, like the more it freaks me out. There's just this idea of of not being able to just hop in your car, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whoever um, mm-hmm. go. Yeah, it's very controlling. And then there seems to be a military presence 
all around um, that aren't necessarily assigned drivers, but they certainly have big vehicles that usually two of them at a time have some big vehicle they drive around and they always carrying guns and pop out of nowhere. Yeah. And by guns, like massive machine guns, mm-hmm. which is scary. Um, and then we have the ants who, if I'm correct, they're the ones that kind of keep the handmaids in line. So when the women get taken into captivity, they're kind of trained to be a handmaid and it's the ants that are the ones that, that, uh, kind of shepherd them, teach them, et cetera. Uh, they're the ones that transport handmade from house to house. If there's a problem with the handmaids, they're the ones that um, take control of them. And they're, it's interesting. I mean, the, the main one is Aunt Lydia. They do show just other ones, but she's the one that is kind of spearheading everything. And she is just, to me, a fascinating, fascinating character. Um, very, I mean, they have to be very cold. They have to be very cruel. Um, they have to keep these girls in line because any sort of acting out or rebellion is met with very punitive measures. So literally plucking an eye out or chopping off a finger Mm -hmm. or, um, those kinds of just horrific things. And those are done at the hands of the ants. Yeah, and the ants, if I recall, the ants all seem to be like women, healthy women that are past their childbearing years, um, and they're almost like drill sergeants. Yeah, it's, to me, the the relationship between them and the handmaids is almost the relationship that guts me the most, because when you see these women who are just so broken, and then they get some hope over you know, the course of whatever circumstance comes their way um, that is hopeful. You almost see a little bit of humanity in the ants, um, but then they turn around and they pluck somebody's eye out. So it's just like <laughs> this huge emotional yo-yo for me um, that's difficult. And then we have the Marthas who, if uh, the Marthas seem to be in the show, and Robin, you have done more recent research, but the Marthas, for the most part, seem to be women of color. Um, they seem to be, at least in, there was a couple episodes where the Marthas had really big uh, presence, and they seemed to mostly be women of color. But they're kind of the servants of the house. They're the ones that make the meals. They're the ones that do the laundry. They're the ones that um, just upkeep the, the house. And it's my assumption that they are all infertile too. And that is why they're not handmaids. Um, Maybe they're not all women of color, but at least in the show, that is where I have seen them pop up the most. And um, we really only see dialogue with a few of the Marthas and primarily just where June is in the Waterford's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't remember what her name is. Rita. Her name is Rita. Rita. Yes, um, yes, yes. And so we see a larger presence of Marthas. I mean, they're, they're present in all the households. Marthas are also the ones that take care of the children where they keep all of the children. Um, but we know there's a Martha 
in every household, but we don't see them a lot in the show until towards the end of season two, we're getting more and more in touch with, with Martha's and certainly uh, in the finale of season two, we see how the Martha's have begun to network among themselves. And I, I think at this point, we probably need to make sure that we understand that there's so much violence and oppression and fear, just rampant fear. And it, it's real fear. I mean, um, at any moment, somebody could be killed. Um, it's out in the open. They're hanging people on the wall. It's just everywhere. And the effect that violence and oppression and fear have on civilization and on people, it's no surprise um, everybody's in survival mode. So um, at first it just seems so hopeless. Um, I remember when um, Alfred first um, hears from of Glenn, the first of Glenn, who's Emily, that, um, that there's a May Day, that there's an us, that there's a resistance. It's just almost like, oh my gosh, you mean maybe, maybe there's hope. It's, uh, it's so interesting. So I like watching this show unfold and trying to imagine how people really respond in situations like this. And um, which is interesting because it's difficult to predict how the characters are going to emerge as this story plot unfolds and who is going to be the one that we least expected um, deep inside was having a sense of, wanting to advocate and rebel against this violent uh, force that's just ruining, doing so much damage to everyone. Exactly. And like you said, that uh, damage and violence comes all the time, everywhere, in very public and horrific ways. Um, there is something worth noting, too, that is beyond Gilead. Um, it's the call. Colonies, and that's where kind of the rejects of society go. Um, it's the handmaids that um, are too unruly. It's the, I don't know, the old barren women that aren't useful with uh, being Martha's. It's uh, just the place that they go that they are going to clean up all the toxic mess. And so it's the understanding that that's kind of a, it's a death sentence if you get sent there, but it's a slow death sentence. So they're basically going to work you to death. And well, and they're also working in toxic environments. So they're out digging in these fields. And we know um, besides, you know, climate change, that there's also this toxicity level. You know, we assume that's from pesticides or air pollution or both. Um, but as we see them there, and it's interesting, it's only women that are held captive to be these workers. Men are either the uh, drivers and rulers in whatever position they're in, whether, you know, they're, they're out there driving women in the fields or they're part of the military or they're the drivers for the commanders or they're the commanders. Men are either in those roles or they're dead. We, I haven't seen any men that are in servitude like the women are. Have you? No. Yeah, that, that is an interesting point to bring up. Um, and I think that's because men are too much of a threat for a rebellion that, than women. I think they assume that they can con much easier control the women. 
yeah. No, I think that's a, a fair assumption. So let's get back a little bit um, to this idea of biblical literalism and radical fundamentalism and how it impacts the expression of human sexuality. So Robin, you touched on that um, sex outside of procreation of advancing the species is not permitted. Um, and we do see that a couple times between Fred and Fred's wife, Serena, where they're not allowed to be together. Um, and then there's also this other community called the Jezebels. And do you want to speak to the Jezebels at all? Well, this is really interesting development because um, it comes as a surprise to the viewer that Fred, um, now we don't, we do know that Fred seems to have taken a shine to of Fred um, or June is what her name was before and invites her into his study to play Scrabble. And it's very much a flirty thing on his part and eventually um, invites her to go on a special outing with him. And that's when we find out that some women have been relegated to be um, prostitutes, in-house prostitutes, uh, Jezebels in this establishment, which is contrary to everything that Gilead is teaching. And the men that frequent it are the, the, powers that be of Gilead you know we assume since Fred is there that the other men there are high-ranking officials commanders as well Uh, and it's almost like uh, it's a secret society where we all have everybody else's backs and we're going to go do this and have fun but you know God forbid anybody should find out that doesn't know about this and isn't part of the club because if they get found out they they will have to ante up and something terrible will happen to that commander. But these Jezebels are there, and these are women, for whatever reason, uh, they didn't make the grade for handmaid, or they were too rebellious as handmaids, and uh, they have been subdued and put into servitude as Jezebels. And, you know, the liquor flows freely, and there's dancing, and there's a hotel, of course, there as well. So Fred takes June there and they have a an evening of fun quote unquote at June's expense so anyway it's a it's a symptom of repressed human sexuality because um, these men have no outlet Um, once a month they have their ritualized sexual encounter with the handmaid Uh, if their wife is barren and of course it's assumed it's the wife's fault that they're not impregnated, um, then there's some kind of taboo on having a normal uh, sexual relationship, even with your wife. And no one is allowed to have sex outside of marriage. So it's, everybody's pretty much a hot mess when it comes to sex in Gilead. We see that come out too in uh, sexual relationships that handmaids have um, with with others, um, not their commanders. Uh, For example, June is having an affair with Nick, but also um, Serena, Fred's wife, is afraid that Fred is sterile. And so she desperately wants um, June to be impregnated. And so she sets it up so that she's there um, supervising the um, 
encounter, but she wants Nick and June to couple because maybe perhaps Nick is fertile and June will become impregnated. Of course, they end up having a love affair and we see that played out in a couple other examples with handmaids as well. So just all kinds of things are happening because of this horrific repression of human sexuality and control people trying to control them. It's interesting because with them taking the Bible so literally and commandments so literally and being blessed according to your faithfulness, um, the level of hypocrisy is just alarming to me in Gilead. Um, from my perspective, if you really believe that that God would either bless you with a child or he wouldn't bless you with a child based on your faithfulness or um, the crops or whatever it is that they're feeling like God is not blessing them with because of the sins of the world. And then for the leaders to just openly indulge in the sins of the world is, it was surprising to me. So, but I guess not surprising, but also very surprising. Well, we see that in different ways, like with Fred, like he has forbidden publications in his office, like magazines and uh, just different things, little things like that, that people aren't allowed to have anymore. Um, and, and he does. So we have to wonder, do the top, top ranking officials um, have some type of wave on those kinds of things? That's a, that's a systemic acceptance among top officials or is Fred and others that are in the secret club, are they just kind of running off the rails and that's not really according to the top lawmakers. We really don't know who, who holds the magic key of the kingdom. I think at this point, we know that Fred's pretty high up, but I'm not sure that they've revealed who the top, top people or person is. Do you No, And that was one thing that I wanted to discuss with you is who actually is in charge. Because to me, it gets to a point where if you're in such a rigid society and everyone has been put in their place so deeply, um, it kind of becomes a machine that just runs itself. I mean, you have the eyes that are doing a job. You have the Marthas that are doing a job, the drivers, the, the Martha, the aunts, the commander's wives, everyone just has their uh, prescribed role and nobody breaks from that. And if they do, they could be killed instantly. And so it's very unclear on who is actually in charge because the system seems to be holding all of the control. And so you see even the commander who is with the girl that gets her eye plucked out. Um, and it comes out that they yeah. end up having some sort of sexual relationship. Warren, that's Warren. Yes, 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 yes. Warren and Janine. Yes, you're a lot better with these than I am. But it ends up coming out that they have a side sexual relationship beyond their uh, monthly trying to have a baby. And, you know, he is punished for that. And so even if, but he, he's a well-respected commander. And I think he gets off, he gets a lot off easier than being stoned to death, but but even those who are in power are at risk of being assassinated um, mm -hmm. or murdered or banished or whatever, um, which tells me that 
that the the system is just so strong and it's just working to the point of being a machine, which gives this really, really eerie uh, vibe throughout the whole show because there's not necessarily one villain. It's like the entire system is the villain. And even um, the people who have, you know, a little bit of humanity in them still, like you, you see them uh, having these moments of, clarity and humanness and love and then they just switch mm-hmm. on you like a you know it's like a switch bait um that is just so hard for my little heart to take <laughs> it's really is a very um powerful commentary on systemic oppression and injustice because it does become systemic um and it's it's even if we're aware of it we participate in ways that we don't recognize that perpetuate a destructive system. So it's watching um, The Handmaid's Tale. There's so many aspects of it that we can look at and say, oh, that's so evil. And yet at the same time, um, in different ways, but also many which are very, very harmful, systemic oppression um, is here and it's very difficult to tease apart and certainly seems at times impossible to, to abolish. Yeah. And a lot of the people, a lot of the characters in the show um, do feel very just resigned to their roles and Mm -hmm. don't feel like they have any power to do anything because if they try disastrous consequences will happen. That's what's so exciting towards the end of season two. We're going to have to put a spoiler alert on this. Uh, oh, for podcast. sure. I meant to do that. Uh, <laughs> to do that but um, that's what's so exciting towards the end of season two. And you get hints of it in season one with the May Day underground is that we're beginning to see this community, uh, this network of community um, take real recognize that together they can do something and to do what they feel is in their power to do. And, it, and it's exciting to see that because that, that's how, that's how we affect change. That's how we affect justice. Yeah. So let's talk about a few other ways that this patriarchy on overdrive impacts the community. Um, what does it look like for the men, women, and children in the society? And what does it look like for the LGBTQIA plus community? Um, there's threads of, of that community in the story as well. Yeah, well, I think that community clearly has been disenfranchised. Um, they're called gender traitors. Um, as far as handmaids, as long as they're fertile and submissive, they're allowed to function in that regard. But if there's any action on their natural sexual orientation, the, um, the repercussions are, are very horrific, including death. And we see a very low tolerance for that and an absolute um, condemning of any sexual orientation that's not heterosexual children we don't see at all because what we understand is they're all being taken care of together certainly the infants are with the mothers either their surrogate mother or their um, adopted the mother that will adopt them for a time but um, it's not clear when they go 
to the place where all the children are being cared for. Uh, the women, we've talked about the different roles that the women have. They have no power. They're not allowed to learn to read. They're not allowed to read. Of course, many of them know how to read because they knew that before, but there are no books available to them. They can't write. They're not allowed to have writing utensils. Um, certainly, they don't have access to funds. They're not in any way making decisions. Um, the most authority they would have would be in their household as far as how the house runs and with the handmaid to some extent. And for some of the women, I think that's part of why they're so harsh with the handmaid because all their power has been stripped away and it's like that's the only control they have. So, um, And as we learn the backstory on these women, uh, Serena was a gifted writer, a gifted uh, speaker. Um, she was very, very helpful and instrumental in some of the foundational documents for Gilead and all that was taken from her and she was relegated to be the uh, keeper of the house, running the house, so to speak, even though she has, you know, women that are in servitude to her. Uh, women just basically have no place of power whatsoever. And then the men have different stations of uh, power depending on their status in society. So it's definitely dominated by males. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this idea of fear a little bit more um, and the idea of controlling an entire society, an entire community uh, based on fear. And I, I think I want to point out that, and I don't know if I made this clear that Gilead is essentially the United States. Um, there are other countries like Canada and, uh, just other countries around the world that we see Gilead interacting with and this strict religious fundamentalism, uh, society is only a Gilead thing. So, Gilead's response to this problem of infertility and drought um, and, you know, world demise is strict fundamentalism, but we don't necessarily see the same fear, the same control in other places. So a lot of refugees end up going to Canada, uh, which is where June and her family were trying to go. Uh, we, we learned that her husband did end up making it there and she and her daughter were stuck behind in America, which became Gilead. So I'm just interested in hearing, I guess, your thoughts on this idea of power and control and just kind of comparing and contrasting that, I guess, to um, other routes that other countries in the story have taken. And, and we don't know much about the other countries. I mean, we know that Canada still seems to be doing what Canada does, um, that they, they, uh, people there are still living free. And yet in America, they've completely closed off the borders. They've completely shut down any sort of immigration in and out and, um, any sort of world law, um, has just been completely demolished and it's all for power and control, um, in hopes to, to turn the world around. Mm -hmm. so, do you have any comments on that? Well, we know that Gilead is seen as a world power and that other, uh, areas of the world. So we know at some point, um, 
two leaders from South, I think it's from South America come up. And because Gilead has experienced some success in birthing children, which we must assume is a pretty good success marker in contrast to other areas of the world, um, these leaders from South America come up and, and we're led to believe that they are in negotiations with Gilead to perhaps trade um, some of the fertile handmaids for crops um, that South America has that Gilead may want. And so we know they're seen as a, as a world power of some type. We know they're in conversations. Um, the Waterfords go to Canada in season two for some type of negotiation. It's not really clear what those talks are about. And it seems like those conversations are at Gilead's request. So there's something that they want to talk to Canada about. I'm not really clear on what it is. Maybe, maybe you have some insights on that. Um, and we know um, that at least it seems to be that the other world leaders are aware that Gilead um, has a very um, militant control in Gilead um, and that things are not on the up and up as far as being a peaceful nation where people live in harmony together. Um, so Gilead's functioning on a, on a military model based on fear and uh, control and that control is maintained through violence, which is very interesting uh, when you put that next to their, um, faith that they say they have this faith in God and for good and righteous things on the earth. So that's, that's quite a contrast there. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting. Season three comes out this spring and I think it'll be interesting to see how um, the relationship between Canada and the United States or Gilead and South America, et cetera, um, mm -hmm. the, the world relationships with Gilead. Cause I think, I think that the recent episode or the, the recent trip, I guess that Serena and Fred took to Canada. Um, I think maybe some of the curtain was pulled back a little bit and more people are understanding just the heinous abuse and, um, violation of against basic human rights that are happening. And so mm -hmm. I, I think that more people uh, are going to join the resistance, if you will, and uh, that it'll have an international, you know, it'll, it'll play on an international scene. At least I'm hoping I have absolutely no insider information. I'm just hoping. <laughs> yeah. So the really interesting thing about um, Fred and Serena's trip to Canada is that Luke and Mara are there and, uh, of course, Mora knows Fred is the commander of uh, June. And uh, so Luke actually uh, approaches him and has a picture of uh, June and, you know, is accusing him. So I, I, it does seem like things unravel a little bit as far as Gilead's, the curtain is pulled back on Gilead to some extent and it becomes quite awkward. Um, Serena and Fred, uh, by the end of their trip, they just have all these angry crowds around their limo. And it's almost like they're trying to get out of the country, not, you know, get killed by the mobs. Um, and of course, Serena goes with him and she's been in this very austere 
living condition uh, surrounded by violence and military control and fear and frustration because she's not allowed to utilize her giftedness at all. And here she's in Canada looking out where people are living, you know, quasi normally in comparison to her situation. And we have to wonder what impact that's had on her. And of course, uh, one of the Canadians does approach her and in a sense is asking her to stay, that she doesn't have to go back to Gilead. And um, of course she does go back to Gilead, but it's really interesting to see these world powers play out. And to some extent, it seems like there are some small portions of the continental U.S. that are still um, holdouts that haven't been taken over by Gilead. And I can't remember. Do you remember that? Maybe just a couple like northwest states or something up near Canada? Yeah, well, there seems to be because there seems to be the ability to jump in the back of a truck like a semi-truck, a delivery Mm -hmm. truck, and cross borders to some degree. And there's still, um, you know, a few private planes, a few private jets. Um, So, yeah, I I, I don't know if I'm clear on where exactly those pockets are or how they have maintained some sort of independence outside of Gilead. Um, But, yeah, there still does seem to be little pockets of quote-unquote regular life um, Mm -hmm. south of the Canadian border and north of the Mexican border. Yeah, it's like they're holding the ground there for hanging on for dear life. I think, you know, another really interesting thing to me is in Gilead, although they, they see themselves as faithful and living by God's word, you never see worship or, you know, um, prayer that we would see or presume to see in a very religious society. It doesn't play out that way at all. The closest thing we see to that is the reading the scripture with the monthly uh, ritual for uh, fertilizing, you know, the woman. And they do have these things, they little blessings they say to each other. Blessed be the fruit. Under his eye. May the Lord yeah. open. May the Lord open, yes. But, but they're all, most of them are all related to fertility. Mm-hmm. Super, super creepy. Um, no, but that's something that I noticed too, that for a hyper-religious society, they don't do a lot of church. Um, there's not, actually, I think th- at the beginning and I think in the book, they, um, you know, they, they publicly executed certain people in the society first. So it was like doctors that performed abortions, college professors, and I think preachers Catholic, were one of them. And Catholic priests. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, not that that is an indication that they wouldn't have worship, but that, mm-hmm. you know, obviously only a certain flavor of religion is accepted, which probably doesn't come to a shock to anyone. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was interesting for being such a faithful, religiously zealot people. Um, there's just not, not a lot of church. One of the really touching things to me is um, the immigration effort, or not, I wouldn't really call it immigration, it would be refugee uh, effort in Canada, how the refugees are received. 
so warmly, so supportively, and they've just rallied so much um, information, trying to organize information, trying to get help for people. I mean, it's it's just incredibly gracious and without hesitation to receive people um, that are so traumatized and who want to know, is there any news on their family or their loved ones? And just the great measures that they take to do everything in their power to support refugees as they enter into Canada. I, I just found that to be so incredibly touching, especially in comparison to, um, you know, some of the things that have happened recently where immigrants are separated, uh, children separated from parents, etc. It's it's was such a contrast and such a, a model of what what it can look like. Yeah. So wrapping up this episode, um, I want to talk a little bit more about this resistance that is bubbling or mayday that is bubbling. Uh, we've painted a pretty grim picture of Gilead, uh, rightfully so, because it's a pretty grim place. But we do see pretty radical resistance starting to form. And so I just want to ask you, Robin, where are you seeing hope for the future of the show and for the future of Gilead? And where are you seeing uh, just kind of the tide starting to turn of where maybe some justice will start to take place? So we've seen it bubble up here and there um, beginning in season one and ramping up a little more in season two, but it's in the finale of season two uh, where we see that, Oh my gosh, people are beginning to connect and organize themselves in ways that they can actually execute this huge uh, night of fire and uh, the Marthas from fence to fence and hedge to hedge getting June and her baby out to the edge of town. And we know there's a new player on the scene who's a commander who's just, you know, emerges in the last few episodes of season two. And he is part of this plot. And suddenly we understand that not only is there a little hope, but there is a big hope. And these are people that are already totally in to the resistance. And on the edge of that, we see uh, things happening with the commander wife, commander's wives. So Serena and other of the commander's wives have actually gone into the meetings of the commanders. Serena has been uh, the, the person who delivers the word of requesting them to consider um, some liberation or more um, privileges for the women. And that is shut down big time. So, but we know that the desire is there. So when you see that kind of coming up from uh, places of privilege in the society, and then this organized systemic resistance across Gilead, it's like, Hope is rising big. So I am excited to see what's going to happen next. And of course, we know that June at the last minute sends her child with Emily, who is uh, taken away to safety, we assume. And June decides to stay. And so we know without a doubt that June will be part of the continuing resistance. How that plays out, we don't know for sure, but it's exciting. 
It is exciting. And I'm glad that you pointed out that, that there are people in places of privilege that are starting to turn and starting to um, kind of take back some of the freedom that they can afford to take back. And then that that's kind of trickling down and, and sprinkling and, and expanding to other people and other um, households, et cetera. Uh, the scene, the, the uh, network of Martha's during the season finale, I was just sobbing like the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like it was so good. It was so good um, to see just a bunch of women supporting a woman and to, to risk their lives um, for that. I mean, just, it wasn't a few seasons or a few episodes before that, that, um, you know, we heard a Martha get, shot in the street and there was one I think hanging from a tree and mm -hmm. you know so they were well well aware of the consequences of helping June escape um, and yet they did it anyways so that to me was extremely uh, empowering and exciting to see just that that amount of resistance mm -hmm. in place. well and it kind of brings to mind uh, civil rights movement, especially down in the South when uh, black people were working together um, and trying to be a force, a, a force for change. Sometimes that erupted into violence, but largely they were trying to organize in peaceful ways and how um, there were white um, people in the deep South that chose to align with the civil rights movement. Some of them weren't out with that, but underground kind of, and in ways that they can navigate without causing uh, disturbance that might ultimately shut down the movement. They were able to help the civil rights movement. And then as things uh, got further on down the road, they were more public with, with their advocacy. So it's interesting to see how people sometimes have to navigate the power they have in an oppressive system so that they can help with the change. Um, they can help more if they play along with it for a period of time so that they can kind of be an undercover force for change until the tide begins to turn. Yeah. So maybe Serena and other wives will do that. I hope so. Well, and at the end of season two, towards the end of season two, we see Serena kind of stand up to the men and say, look, I want my daughter to learn how to read. And so she walks mm -hmm. the Bible and she starts reading, um, which was empowering. And I was like screaming at the TV. And it was <laughs> <laughs> what we really need is just a hidden camera set in Brittany's living room and then one in Robin's living room. And we can just watch, <laughs> <laughs> see our reactions in real time, because at least for me, it's pretty entertaining. I'm kind of a hot mess when I watch this show. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a brave act. Of course she paid for that. <laughs> yeah. She did. When so I she shut, she shut down, uh, on the, uh, being out with that, but I think she may go undercover. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I was just going to say when I said earlier uh, in this conversation that people lost fingers or they lose fingers, if they disobey that, that is what happened to Serena. Okay. So we, I feel like we have covered the ins and outs, the skeleton of Gilead pretty well. Um, we have an outline, I guess, just for our listeners. Uh, we, 
we have an outline and we've covered most everything, but every time we move beyond a point, I think of like a million other things to say. So um, I think this is going to be part one of a multi-episode series. It might only be two episodes. I'm not sure. We'll see where it goes. But um, yeah, there's just so much to talk about. And I mean, how do you sum up two seasons worth of television in one hour? I mean, you can't. Um, So I... I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation and to maybe get more in depth into some of the characters. Um, June's character is, it just is fascinating to me um, for a wide variety of reasons. So um, yeah, I think this is probably where we're going to end it today. Um, Just kind of a, an overview of, of Handmaid's Tale and some of the major themes, I guess, that are woven throughout the series Um, And then we are going to get a little more in depth in a future episode. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Robin, for joining me. Um, This is something that we talk about and text about quite frequently when the new episodes are airing. It's, It's a captivating show, to say the least. And if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. And hopefully... Hopefully everyone that's listening by this point has watched it because we have said some pretty major spoilers with, and there's kind of the basic assumption that everyone knows what we're talking about. So uh, yeah, it's a fascinating show and I'm excited to keep talking to you about it, Robin. So thank you. Thank you, Brittany. It's always a joy. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.